1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of this conversation, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Mario T. Garcia, author of Father Luis Olivares, a biography, Faith Politics and the Origins of the Sanctuary Movement in Los Angeles, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2018. Dr. Garcia is professor of Chicano studies and history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where his research and teaching focuses on U.S.-Mexico migration, uh, Chicano-Latino community formation, identity, and politics. Uh, Dr. Garcia is the author of several books, biographies, and testimonials featuring the life and work of activists like Burt Corona, Sal Castro, and many others engaged in the struggle for Chicano civil rights and social justice. I'll also just add really quickly that this is uh, Dr. Garcia's second appearance on New Books in Latino Studies. Our previous conversation was over his uh, 2015 book, The Chicano Generation Testimonials of the Movement, which was published by UC Press. So, hello, Mario, and welcome back to New Books in Latino
0: Studies. Thank you, David. Thank you for inviting me, and it's glad to be uh I'm with you again.
1: Wonderful. Well, it's a pleasure, again, to have you and to discuss this particular book, um, uh, this biography of Father Luis Olivares, uh, as well as um, uh, so much of this f- focuses on the sanctuary movement in Los Angeles. So can you begin by telling us a little bit about uh, how this project developed? I mean, specifically, why did you you know, decide to write a biography of Father Luis Olivares? Um, and, and, and maybe some comments on why it's important to have this biography now, particularly.
0: Okay. Well, uh, I had not known about Father Olivares because, of course, he was in the press and the media throughout the 80s. And so even here in Santa Barbara, of course, we uh, read about him in the L.A. Times and he was on television a lot and so forth over the uh, struggles of the sanctuary movement. So I was aware of him and I was aware of uh, the important work that he was doing, but I never met him. And then uh, he died, of course, in 1993, so I, I you know, I never met him. Uh, later in the 90s, I began to be involved a bit more in uh, researching Chicano-Catholic history. And uh, as I was putting together this book on Ch- Chicano-Catholic history, it dawned on me that maybe an important chapter would be on Father Olivares and the Sanctuary Movement in Los Angeles. So that's when I uh, began to do this research, actually, like in the early 80s, and uh, began to uh, search out his story and uh, with a focus on the sanctuary movement. Of course, I couldn't interview him because he already had passed, but I did interview members of his family, um, some of the people involved in the sanctuary movement, and so forth. So I was able to put together that uh, chapter, that essay. and. that book was published, I believe, in 87, 1987 by University of Texas Press. It's called *Catholicos: uh, Resistance and Affirmation in Chicano-Catholic History. And it's a series of essays, uh, researched essays, on different uh, aspects of Chicano-Catholic history that includes Father Olivares. <clears throat> one other one, just to note, uh, maybe for your listeners, is a chapter on *Catholicos por la raza, which was a really interesting Chicano Catholic group linked to the Chicano movement in Los Angeles in the late 1960s and no one had ever written about Catholicos. And so that was a very important chapter. Indeed, no one had written, written about Father Olivares either. So that chapter uh, moved me in the direction of thinking about doing a full biography. And it didn't take me long because he has some very fascinating uh, history. So I began in the 80s and to, uh, I should say in the 90s, in the 90s, the book was published in 1997, I began to begin to do more research and uh, discover documents and so forth. And maybe later we can talk about uh, the research idea because there is no Father Luis Olivares archive anywhere in the world. I basically had to discover and make up my own archives. But very fundamental for the book, and I don't think I could have done it, I did ninety-three oral history interviews, again with a whole range of people, starting with his family, his brother, who was also a Croatian uh, priest, and uh, interviewed some of his siblings in San Antonio, because he was Father Olivares was born in San Antonio, nineteen thirty-four, and then you know people who, uh, because I um, I wanted to do a full biography. Yes, he was quite well known or better known, I should say, for his work with the sanctuary movement, and that would become key to the book. But uh, I wanted to do the whole biography from beginning to end, and so I interviewed not only siblings but people who he had been in the seminary with uh, in uh, in Compton here in uh, the L.A. area, and through his becoming a priest, his early priesthood, and then becoming later. Uh, uh, involved uh, politically uh, his activism and so forth. So so it has a kind of a longer genealogy in terms of uh, becoming interested in writing his biography, but that's kind of the the genesis of it. And uh, I had other projects that I was working on at the same time, that's part of the delay in why the book didn't come out until a couple of years ago. But once I had assembled all of the material, which was uh, quite large, uh, it took me three years to write um, uh, the book, and uh, it's the biggest book I've ever done. Uh, it's over 500 printed pages, and it could have been longer. I had cut out about 60,000 words, but, um, but I'm glad that it finally did come out.
1: Well, thank you for that, and it, you know, it definitely is a substantial and, and very thorough a biography although it it reads you know very very well and uh you know so it, it is quite large even as you just mentioned the um the pages though i didn't even realize it was that long it didn't seem it didn't actually feel like i was reading you know five or six hundred pages so you well, did a phenomenal guess, job Really,
0: that's, that's, a, that's a nice comment and uh but it could have been long you know biographies by their very nature, tend to be very large. You know, we have biographies uh-huh. of various Definitely. people, and they can range up to a thousand pages. Uh-huh. It's possible I could have put together a thousand pages, printed pages. But again, I, I knew my editor at uh, University of North Carolina Press was already beginning to be a bit concerned, and so I, they didn't have to tell me to cut. I knew that I had to cut, and that's why I did cut those sixty thousand words. But uh, it's uh, yeah, but it's a substantial. Uh, you know, book uh, and covers all of his life.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and you also mentioned early, actually in the introduction, that it's, you know, although it's, you know, it is a biography, I think like all you know, really good and well-written biographies, it also says, you know, something, has something much larger to say, right? So you mentioned that this is, you know, not just a biography of, of Olivares, but, you know, also it's, it's a collective biography mm-hmm. in ways of, of, you know, the, not just the sanctuary movement in Los Angeles, but you know all the people that, that he was involved and in, surrounded with. So it doesn't surprise me when you just said here that uh, you said, uh, how many oral histories? 90, 90 93. 93 oral histories. Wow. Um, yeah. That really, I mean, that makes a lot of sense now when yeah. uh, all the quotes and the depth at which you get here. So, But you definitely do get a, a much fuller sense and picture of, uh, again, how the sanctuary movement develops in Los Angeles of um, particularly all these different influences on Olivares' life and that that get him to that point. So I want to get there in a moment, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment uh, quickly on this concept that you uh, discuss in the introduction. That is the concept of faith politics, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so why is that important? Uh, You spend I mean, you know, I don't know, probably about a, a couple pages, or a page or two or so of explaining that concept. Uh, it's used not only in this project itself, but also why mm-hmm. is it important larger, you know, in, in Chicano history?
0: Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Um, what I wanted to emphasize was that in the area of Chicano history, we've neglected... Um, the role that uh, what I call faith politics involves, that is to say, a lot of people of faith, uh, clergy and uh, but secular as well, um, have, have been influenced by their faith to become engaged socially, politically, in community movements. I can't say that I can say, okay, all of these people have been, but I just have no sense that if historians begin to look community by community, they will find other clergy and other people of faith like Father Olivares who have been involved in community struggles, including civil rights struggles or immigrant rights struggles. But we have uh, developed, although it is changing, Uh, a kind of uh, curtain that has divided the history of Chicanos and faith politics with Chicanos who we see as more uh, driven by secular influences. And I think it's a false curtain or divide, and we need to correct that. Um, The role of religion has been significantly uh, marginalized in Chicano studies, and in Chicano history. And that needs to change because uh, I think that uh, we're uh, eliminating uh, very important aspects of that history. And by faith politics, I mean people, again, who are moved by their faith to become involved. In the case of Father Olivares, up to the, when he becomes involved with the sanctuary movement, he, it's his faith that te- is telling him that he had to help the refugees and the undocumented Mexican immigrants. These were people of God, as he often said. They're the children of God. And I have to be with them. I have to uh, embrace them. Um, so his politics and his faith were intertwined. There were two sides of the same coin. And so, uh, so I think that's important for us to begin to understand how some people become engaged politically from their faith. Cesar Chavez was similar. Dolores Huerta was similar. But take the example of Cesar Chavez. I mean, there's no question that his deep devotion to his Catholic faith was central to his. Um, activism to his leadership in the farmworker struggle. There's a telling comment that, that uh, Caesar made uh, after many years of struggle. Someone asked him, uh, what has kept you going? Uh, what has kept you uh, involved in the farmworker struggle with all the ups and downs? And he said, well, it wasn't a, a political doctrine It wasn't an economic doctrine, it was my faith. That said it all. It was his faith. And uh, so Caesar is another example of faith politics, someone who is practicing faith politics. I mean, Caesar was not cognizant of, for example, liberation theology as Father Olivares was, but Caesar practiced liberation theology. And the core of liberation theology is to have a preferential option for the poor and for the oppressed. Well, that was Caesar's mission. That was he was engaged in with the farm workers. And so too Father Olivares, that uh, who was much more uh, uh, attuned to liberation politics out of Latin America, out of the nineteen late 1960s, which again basically said that the main role of the church the catholic church was to be with the poor and the oppressed and to to assist them and help them and be part of their struggle and so forth well father Olivares um, became a liberationist and uh you see it very clearly in 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 his struggles and and that and and even predating the uh sanctuary movement because in the late uh 1970s where his activism really begins to manifest itself, he becomes a key leader of an organization in in East LA called UNO by its acronym, which stood for the United Neighborhoods Organization. That was an industrial areas foundation, Sololitsky influence organization. But Olivares comes to it already influenced by liberation theology. And so here he's working with, uh, again, poor people or, Chicanos in East L.A. who still face many, many daunting uh, cha- uh, conditions and lack of opportunities, and he begins to uh, apply his leadership uh, with, uh, with Uno. And he led their signature uh, campaign that put him on the political map, which was to challenge the big... Uh, uh, car insurance, automobile insurance uh, corporations who were charging exorbitant and discriminatory auto rates in East L.A. All right, Uno took that on as his first major challenge, and it was Father Olivares who became the head of that, uh, of that challenge. And, and after a two-year struggle or so, they were able to defeat these uh, corporations and get the insurance rates rescinded. Then when he goes to La Placita in 1981, at, and he goes there at the very moment when the Central American refugees are entering. And as I said earlier, he immediately embraced them and that laid the foundation for the decoration of La Placita Church, Our Lady Queen of Angels Church there in downtown LA as a sanctuary <clears throat> uh, in uh, 1985. And uh, then he expands that two years later to, to include undocumented Mexican sure. immigrant workers. No other century movement throughout the United States ever did that, to expand it, to include the undocumented uh, Mexican immigrant workers. So faith politics, again, uh, is a way of trying to suggest that we need, as historians, to see about the role of faith in Chicano history. That doesn't mean, you know, uh, that uh, we're gonna be looking at, uh, you know, people praying and people, yeah, uh, right. it means how do they use their faith to become politically involved in a progressive fashion?
1: Right. You know, and so much of that rings true uh, to me. I was just telling uh, you before we came on and started recording, I recently uh, took uh, a group of students with some colleagues uh, down to South Texas in relation to a Latino civil rights class uh, that we're teaching. Uh, here at Brigham Young University. And we met with several um, former activists, particularly involved in Daraza Unida. And uh, what comes to mind, as you were mentioning that, is, you know, our last day of this trip, we're meeting with Rosie Castro and Mario uh, Compean and, and and others. And Rosie specifically said that being raised in, you know, a household where they, they you know, read, you know, the New Testament a lot and read about you know Jesus Christ's work among the poor and, and all of that 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 you know is is really what influenced you know her at a young age um, you know to, to develop these notions of social justice right mm-hmm. what's right and wrong and that really planted the seed right to become involved right and and so as you're discussing that right that I think perhaps when we uh, or you know maybe that the, the, the partial hesitancy of historians or scholars to address religion, um, particularly within you know those activists that um, mm-hmm. you know that that have been very much prescient in the movement, but it is because there's there's a whole spectrum right of how people express their faith or may or may not uh, you know refer to it as one of the primary impetus
0: mm-hmm. right
1: for what they do right so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but anyways, it like I said, it it definitely rings true. It, it, it's several I can think of several other people that we met with. You know, they talked about their households when they were young. Um, you know, Martha Cortera uh, and others that we met with. You know, and so they just talked about that influence of of where this sense of ethics, of morals, of rights and wrong came from. And, and mm-hmm. several of them reference you know not only their families, their home, but also uh, particularly the religious traditions they were raised in. Yes,
0: so. I don't think that's very true, and. um you know, it would be interesting when we do a survey over the years of Chicanos, uh, Latinos who emerge as key leaders and so forth. How many of them would have, would say the same thing, and how many of them had maybe went to parochial schools, and uh, that's where at least the, some germ of social justice was uh, placed in them, if you will. And uh, and I suspect uh, a good number would be of that uh, kind of background. What what I think going back to why there's been this gap in terms of not only religion but faith politics, really in my opinion goes back to the Chicano movement because the movement saw itself as a very much a secular movement and had a mistrust of religion. But what they meant was that was the the establishment church and and with good reason because in many ways the establishment church had not done as much uh for its uh chicano latino parishioners that was the whole um, motive for Católicos por la raza in l a but but religion isn't just the established church uh, religion is how uh people in their own way practice it at home this is popular religiosity right and for some of them you know that also probably you know it's been part of the backdrop to why they become involved uh, politically. But again, even having said that, my sense that you could find many other clergy, priests, somewhat similar to Father Olivares by various community studies that can be done in terms of priests who were involved in parishes in Navarios and how they uh, were involved politically. For example, I mean, I mentioned UNO in LA. Well, UNO was organized around the Catholic parishes. Uh, Cops in uh, Los San Antonio, which was organized a little bit earlier, uh, was also organized around the Catholic parishes because the, uh, the, the idea behind both organizations was to get the clergy involved. And by getting them involved, that would help Impress upon the their parishioners the importance of they themselves getting involved uh-huh. and in 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 movements that would help to improve conditions in the barrios. and so. You know, one could I, I expect there's a lot of Father Olivarez types uh, over the over historical periods that we could uh, we could examine as well.
1: Right. Well, you mentioned a a few of these key. Um, you know, relationships and organizations that Olivares had that, um, as you put it, uh, you know, promote this conversion that Olivares has, right? And and this conversion from a a Gucci priest, right, to a social justice activist, right? So you already mentioned that he had contact with uh, Cesar Chavez. He worked with UNO, the United Neighborhoods Organization. He also Right, had contact and worked with those that were associated with cops in San Antonio and and whatnot. So, you want to piece that uh, together a bit more for us and and describe you know the the basis for this conversion because that seems to be in somewhat a kind of transitional moment at least in the biography as you write about it. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, yes, because Father Olivaris, uh began his priesthood. Not as an activist. Uh, this is we're talking here in, into the into the sixties, uh, and he was ordained in sixty one. Uh, and but he became very much kind of uh, very much uh, enmeshed in the bureaucracy of the Carthusian order, which was his order, and uh, he rose very quickly up the ranks. I mean, he had and he had already displayed this in his seminary years. Keep in mind that when he went to the seminary he was only fourteen years old this is what what in, in his period of time this is how young boys were recruited as potential priests uh, their teachers predominantly nuns would look for the best and the brightest and help encourage them to believe that they had a uh, they that they had a a sense of becoming priest uh, and uh, this is what happened to to Father Olivaris and also a year earlier for his uh, older brother Henry. So, uh, but in his seminary years that uh, covered basically his high school and his college and post college, postgraduate work in theology, he displayed already uh, a, a tendencies of leadership. Uh, he was smart. He was articulate. Uh, he was engaging. He had a great sense of humor but he had leadership qualities. And that's why after he's ordained, he quickly moves up uh, the ranks of the Croatian uh, order. And in the mid 1960s, he is named treasurer of the order, which was second in command uh, to, uh, to, the, to the provincial. And as a treasurer, his duty was to uh, raise funds for the order and to invest the monies that the order had through their properties and through donations and through other ways that they, were, that they had funds. And indeed, Olivares was handling a multi million dollar portfolio. And his task was to invest it in Wall Street in order to increase that portfolio. So uh, he would be wind and dying by Wall Street uh, bankers and, and, and financiers. Um, they would uh, pay for him to go fly first class to New York. They would put him up in first class hotels, take him out to first class restaurants, have get him tickets for Broadway shows. And Father Olivaides loved that. He loved that lifestyle. And uh, and embraced it, and he dressed the part. He, and, and people say to me, well, how does it, I mean, he looked very elegantly uh, and very well-dressed, and people ask me, well, how, how can a priest be well-dressed and look elegantly? Well, don't they all dressed in this drab black? Mm-hmm. And I say, well, yes, he dressed in black, that's true, but how about a silk black suit? Not an ordinary uh Suit, but a silk black suit with French cuffs, a silk white shirt, and then, as you as you noted earlier, his famous Gucci shoes, Mm -hmm. and that's why some seminarians began to refer to him as the Gucci priest, and some later referred to him as uh, Father GQ, and uh, but that that was who Father Olivares was at that time, except by his own admission. In 1975, like Saint Paul, he 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 was converted. He, he went underwent a conversion, not a lightning bolt like Saint Paul, but but in his case, he said, "My conversion was in meeting Cesar Chavez for the very first time." And they met in 1975. Caesar went to see Father Olivares to see if the Clarion Order could uh, help fund some of the. Uh, strike activities, and boycott activities of the UFW. And he was just uh, totally impressed with Caesar. And from there, he began to work with the UFW. He and Caesar became very, very close. And indeed, Father Olivares in many ways was Caesar's confessor. Uh, And, He would often go up to Delano or to La Paz to be with. He married a couple of the the children, including Paul Chavez, and uh, and would speak at the conventions uh, of the UFW usually in Fresno, and uh, so that was how he started becoming politically engaged. And while he remained treasurer, he requested that he now be based out of an East LA. Church, a parish, and so he was assigned to Soledad Parish, and there where his work with the UFW even increases. You know, he's, he uses he uh, allows the UFW to begin to help organize the boycott activities in East LA uh, out of his out of his church, and uh, and it's from there that he encounters Uno. And the UNO UNO organizers who come to East LA very quickly realize the leadership qualities of Father Ullivarez and and bring him into the folds of UNO. And he embraces UNO. And as I said earlier, becomes one of the key leaders. Certainly he was clearly the key clergy leader. uh, And um, he um, not only did, did he work with the, on the insurance, but but on some of the other uh, activities of UNO, and also he became in many ways a key spokesperson for UNO. That's why he 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 became kind of already a kind of a media star in the late uh, '70s. He was on television, English language, Spanish language, in the press, and so forth, as a spokesperson. For for Udo and uh, especially during the period of the struggle on the auto insurance rates, so that was his conversion. It becomes an active priest, and it's during this period of time, as I suggested earlier, that he also encounters the concept of liberation theology. Mm-hmm. He begins to read into liberation theology uh, and to and to learn from it and to and to see how it applied or could apply to him, and of course. He did then begin to move to have that preferential option for the poor and the oppressed that he, you know, manifested in Uno and then later with, with the uh, refugees and the undocumented. But he he didn't begin as an activist. Uh, he became an activist, and uh, he did. He wasn't born as a liberationist. He became a liberationist and continued to evolve and and to apply you know, his commitment to uh, working with the poor and the oppressed into the uh, the next decade of the 1980s.
1: Yes, you know, it seems that a, sea, a, a key part of this uh, transformation for Olivares also, um, in some ways, kind of liberated him to really embrace his Mexican-American identity. You know, he's. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you agree with that? I mean, it, it seems that. Yes, that's, that's a good point. I'd like
0: to raise that idea. But yes, because, I mean, of course he knew... He was of Mexican background. He grew up in uh, on the uh, in the barrios in, in San Antonio, in West San Antonio, and uh, uh, grew up speaking Spanish. You know, uh, his um, father spoke predominantly Spanish. His uh, grandmother and his aunt, um, who really became kind of his mother after his own mother died at a very she was young, and, and Father Olivares was only about four years of age. But he he grew up in a Spanish speaking. Uh, household and a Spanish-speaking world there in uh, West San Antonio. Of course, he learned English by going to the Catholic uh, schools there in that, in that community. And, uh, But he when he went to the seminary, I mean, in the seminary years, I mean, uh, there wasn't much emphasis on issues of ethnicity. But at the same time, I mean, he tended to kind of bond together with the other Mexican-American kids at the seminary, including his brother, Henry. And they would, uh, they, on their own, they would speak Spanish. And uh, even occasionally, the term Chicano was used amongst amongst them. And so, no, he, he knew of his ethnic background, but it wasn't something that was central to him. But... Later, as I described, when he undergoes the conversion and begins to work with the UFW, with many of the Mexican Americans who were part of the UFW, and certainly with UNO in East LA, which is was predominantly with other Mexican Americans, his sense of ethnicity comes to the fore. And he begins to uh, embrace that and to, uh, you know, have. Uh, understands how important that uh, identifying with his uh, ethnic background is because he's working with other people of that same ethnic background and how that sense of ethnicity helps to, in a way of bringing them together, helping to organize them and so forth. But uh, so, yeah, his his sense of ethnicity, identity, I think, becomes sharpened when he begins to become politically engaged. I don't know that he ever used the term Chicano uh, as he applied it to himself. I don't think he had any problem with it, but he didn't use the term himself, at least as far as I could tell. But he had no problem with people who called himself Chicano, and he had no problem. I mean, in the height of the Chicano movement, as I say in the book, this is when he – it's his his non-conversion years. He must have been obviously in L.A. aware of the Chicano movement, you know, the walkouts and all of the other – Manifestation, including the strong Chicano anti-war moratorium movement, but he was not political. At least, I mean, he was if, it, if he was political, it was political in terms of the of his order, of, of, uh, supporting his order in the way that he did as a treasurer. And uh, but it's not until after his conversion. That, but so he he didn't have an identity with the Chicano movement; was not engaged with it. But his Political activism comes later, and uh, but but yes, his sense of ethnic identity is there. It's sharpened as part of his ability to reach out to the Central American refugees and the undocumented Mexican workers and so forth. And uh, he's able to do that in part because his ability to speak Spanish. Although, you know, he was bilingual, but in those seminary years, English became his dominant language when he becomes converted to faith politics, uh, he in a way has to kind of reacquaint himself with, um, with Spanish and, and to be able to um, speak more in Spanish and, and very significantly to be able to give his homilies, his sermons in Spanish, which he had to do like at uh, Soledad Parish and then later La Placita. And he became a very uh, capable uh, speaker in Spanish uh, and that added to the power of his homilies beginning with Soledad but moving into La Placita his Sunday sermons his homilies were politically were political sermons to the extent that he always connected the gospel reading to uh, the politics of the day much of it uh, in terms of the sanctuary movement but uh, in terms of immigration and other issues as well And um, by all indicators and based on my interviews, he was a powerful, powerful speaker. And of course he was during the period of the sanctuary movement, of course, he was also engaged with groups that were protesting against the U.S. involvement in Central America in supporting the right-wing governments and military and death squads in El Salvador, and then also attempting to overthrow the Sandinista revolution in the 1980s. And Father Olivares, part of his faith politics was to be engaged with those groups as well. And he became kind of titular leader of some of these organizations and was often asked to speak at rallies and at uh, conferences or conventions. And uh, so his sense of, of his ethnic self becomes part of his faith politics.
1: Right. When it seems that his next, then, you know, transformation after, you know, his kind of political and, and identity kind of transformation occurs is, you know, his public, right, embracing of the sanctuary movement, right? So in... You alluded to this before. Early, you know, in 1981. He's as soon as he moves to almost as soon as he moves to La Placita, he's uh, he starts to embrace and provide, you know, use the church as a place of refuge for these refugees. But he doesn't make a a public announcement. Doesn't publicly declare sanctuary until essentially three years into the larger sanctuary movement. Uh, and you write that once he does that, this is this is like the pinnacle, right of of Olivares in in his career, like kind of like everything has been leading up to that moment. Can you ex- explain more? You know, uh, you put so much emphasis on that. Why that is? What is it about? How he expands? How he both initiates sanctuary and then expands it in L.A. That really is this culminating moment for him.
0: Yes, very much so. Uh, well, when he goes to La Placita in '81, as I mentioned, this is the same time that the refugees are coming in into the United States, and that will lead to. I mean, the origins of sanctuary movement. Uh, around that time, around 81, 82, uh, out of Tucson and uh, Arizona. And then in time, the sanctuary movement will spread throughout the country so that uh, various churches, Catholic, actually not that many Catholic churches, but certainly a lot of progressive Protestant churches, and in some cases, Jewish uh, communities uh, declared themselves as sanctuaries to try to help in any way that they could the refugees who were being persecuted by the Reagan administration the Reagan administration like the Trump administration today was basically saying no these are not legitimate political refugees they are illegal aliens coming to take jobs from Americans so the policy of the Reagan administration was to apprehend them and to uh, and to uh, and to deport them well a lot of good Americans stood up and said no that's not who we are just' happening today and uh, And they often pointed out, as Olivares did, it was the Reagan administration was breaking the law because in 1980, under President Carter, uh, a uh, legislation was passed on uh, political refugees and defining a political refugee, meaning basically someone who, if they were sent back to their home country, they would be either tortured, killed, or both. And so... The sanctuary movement was basically telling Reagan, "Well, you're the ones breaking the law. We're not breaking the law. You're breaking the law." Sounds familiar.
1: That's and right. so,
0: um, Father Olivares uh, was embraced the refugees early on, and began to uh, systematically put together a range of programs to assist them, um, including allowing some of the male refugees to sleep in the church itself, or in the basement of the church. That became quite controversial. Uh, not so much among his parishioners who were very uh, accepting of it, but other, in other Catholic groups, even in respect to the uh, Archdiocese office, and even in the in the public, you know. So, but uh, he housed them, and in the Wednesday, I mean, at, at, he, he probably he was housing about six hundred a night, but of course there were many others. It's estimated that in the nineteen eighties, about a million Salvadorians, for example, come to the United States. Half of them will come to Los Angeles. Right. No way that Father Olivares could house them or f- help them completely because there were just too many. He did what he could. And of course, he was he believed in symbols, and he believed that at least. It would be symbolic that at least one Catholic church, since most of the Salvadorians were Catholic, that at least one Catholic church was seen as a church that was there to help the the Salvadorians and other Central Americans. And that included when he declared sanctuary in 85. But these programs that he established and and they became institutionalized there at La Placita included feeding them, of course, uh, providing health uh support uh, uh some of them had themselves been tortured and so forth, providing psychological help, especially including people who had undergone torture or their family members had been tortured or killed, um, trying to find jobs for them, uh teaching them English to help them find jobs and to help them just kind of uh, uh, adjust to life in the united states um getting their kids into schools and so forth. And, um, and that, all this became institutionalized in what was referred to as a, uh, El Centro, Centro Pastoral. Mm-hmm. And uh, so all this is already, he is practicing sanctuary even before he declares sanctuary. Now, why does he choose to declare sanctuary, you know, three, four years later in 1985? I think, as I mentioned in the book, it's at that time that some of the sanctuary people out of Tucson, the origins of the sanctuary movement in the country, they began to be uh, prosecuted, persecuted by the Reagan administration. They will be indicted for various uh, felonies of uh, aiding and abating uh, quote unquote illegal aliens, and they will have to go to trial and so forth. And I think that Father Olivarez, along with his uh, main uh, Lieutenant, if you will, at their La Placita, Father Mike Kennedy, a Jesuit, felt that this was the time for them to also go public. It was important for them now to go public and declare sanctuary, in part in support of what was happening to some of the people who had earlier publicly declared sanctuary and now were being persecuted, prosecuted. So that laid, you know, that kind of moved them in the direction. And so on uh, December twelfth the Feast de Valle de Guadalupe and he deliberately chose the Feast de Valle de Guadalupe especially to bring in his own parishioners and other uh, especially uh, Mexican-American Catholics into supporting what he was going to declare. Uh, so on that date, December 12, 1985, he publicly declared La Placita Church as a sanctuary haven and church for the refugees. And um that was a big step for him. It was, uh, as you mentioned, uh, in a way, I, I, mean, I mean, it was uh, almost the climax the part of, uh, of what he had been moving towards right. uh, in terms of becoming an uh, activist priest, a liberationist priest. And uh, But it didn't stop there, because okay. two years later, as I had mentioned, he expanded sanctuary to include undocumented Mexican immigrants. And the impetus for that was the 1986 Immigration and Naturalization Control Act, IRCA, Uh which did provide for for amnesty for some undocumented if they could prove residence for a period of years up to 1982. But Father Olivares quickly saw the problem with this. Number one, most of the refugees who were perceived by the Reagan administration as undocumented themselves, had come after 1982. What was going to happen to them? Well, they would be subject to deportation. In addition, thousands of undocumented Mexican immigrants were entering into the 1980s beyond 1982. What was going to happen to them? Well, the same thing. So he protested those provisions of the ERCA law. He had no problem with amnesty, but he it, said it, it just to be expanded to include the people that are still coming. Right. So, uh, and so he wanted to bring attention to that. And one way that he did it. And by the way, when he's doing all of these uh, provision, these programs for the Central American refugees, housing all that, he's already doing it to undocumented Mexican immigrants. He doesn't differentiate. In fact, even homeless people are, are supported by these programs. He throws out a white um, uh, umbrella. And so it's no leap of faith, in a way, two years later, 1985, that he expands sanctuary to say now La Platita is going to be a safe haven, a sanctuary for Mexican undocumented workers. And as I said earlier, no other sanctuary movement did that. In fact, some in the sanctuary movement in LA. Who's, who in some of the uh, groups that were against, for example, what the Reagan administration was doing in uh, Central America, but some of them had problems with the expansion of sanctuary because they said this is going to kind of cloud the issues that I mean, we should continue to focus just on the refugees and uh, not the Mexican undocumented. But, you know, that wasn't going to, uh, you know, affect Father Olivares. He said they're also children of God. They're in great need. The church is here for them as well, and I'm going to expand sanctuaries to bring attention to the plight of the Mexican undocumented also. So um again that was an expansion of that kind of you know ascension and climax of uh, of his career. And uh and so uh you know these were these were heady years uh and 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 dangerous years. And as I write in the book, he, he got many death threats. And, uh, he had to deal with that, but he kept, uh, he kept up in, in his work and it wasn't going to d- d- deter him in any, in any way. And, um, he was courageous. He was brave. He made several trips to, to El Salvador. He made one trip to Nicaragua and he went there to meet with other clergy, to go to the, to the, meet with the peasants out in the countryside in El Salvador. Uh, Refugee camps uh, uh, in Honduras, and uh, and I found out, uh, and I, I write in the book, is really quite a, uh, astounding that on some of these trips he would actually take large amounts of cash, right, right. to distribute to the groups that group were working with uh, people who were being uh, displaced from the countryside in uh, in El Salvador, for example, and were flocking into. Uh, uh, the capital, San Salvador, and um, he he would take literally cash in a suitcase, and uh, it boggles the mind how he, that, that how he was able to, you know get through <laughs> customs or whatever. But apparently he was able to do that and take that money to uh, where it was needed. Mm-hmm. So uh, just an, an incredible person, because and then again always I mean he became a huge media star. I mean he was always on TV. English, Spanish, uh, all over the LA Times, all over La Opinion, other publications, radio te- as, as well. I mean, he he was a spokesperson, not only for the sanctuary movement in LA, but for the groups that were, again, uh, opposing uh, US policies in uh, in Central America.
1: Gotcha. All right.
0: And, and Just one, one further thought, uh, <clears throat> to, to kind of really focus on the fact how important it was that he declared Sanctuary La Pazita, no other Catholic church in the huge LA Archdiocese had the courage to declare sanctuary.
1: Right. And no other church declared or, you know, expanded sanctuary for undocumented Mexican immigrants, right? No. Yeah.
0: And, Yeah. uh, yeah.
1: I mean, this, this goes to a point that you make early uh, in the introduction in regards to uh, sort of explaining why write a biography of someone that, you know, many Americans have never heard of. I mean, this goes into your, your discussion of, you know, the inclusion, the importance to include this history into broader, you know, American history and whatnot, and, and how this is both a, you know, an individual biography, but a collective biography. It, if you could speak to uh, briefly, because I know we're running short on time, um, you know, how olivares really you know in regards to like more local history like la and california how you know being at la placita and you know working with these refugees i mean he saw right and in many ways was already you know serving and developing programming to you know address the changing demographics of la right particularly Mm -hmm. the shift from you know a a very mexican-american centered you know hispanic la latino la to a pan-latino right los Mm -hmm. angeles Right, I mean that—that's part of this. You know, he—he is the first in a number of things, right, to do certain things in the whether it's in sanctuary or within the, you know, the Catholic Archdiocese in in Los Angeles and type of figure he was. But even to you know broader regional history, I mean, on the ground, he was seeing and really really ushering in this demographic transformation. You know, in ways that wouldn't be recognized till later.
0: Yes, I mean, again, he brought together. Mexican-American Catholics were the Central American Catholics. And they didn't have to be Catholics, but he brought them all together. And that's what he did in La Placita. La Placita, prior to 1981, was primarily a Mexican-American parish. He reconverted that to a pan-Latino parish by bringing in the refugees into the services, into the masses. And uh, he had a, a picture of the martyred uh, uh, Father uh, Mancino Romero in the, in the church itself. And he brought his parishioners in together with the uh, Salvadorans, for example, and, and people from Guatemala as well. So it really became a pan Latino church. Like when he he's choosing December 12th, Feast of Our Lady Guadalupe, was important in that kind of pan Latinoism as well, because on that day, Virgin Guadalupe also became pan Latino. She became uh-huh. also a Salvadorian a saint, and uh, so he understood the changing demographics, especially with the refugees coming in and so forth, and uh, and uh, you know and, and that's that and that was part of his uh, you know attempt to bring to people's attention the changing demographics of Los Angeles. Uh, he. You know what I what I try to suggest, and you mentioned it in terms. I mean, why why study Olivarez? The importance of how, how he is to say to American history and so forth. I mean, and for example, when I approached the, my editor at North Carolina Press about my biography of Olivarez, his first response was, uh, "Who is Father Olivarez?" And I said, uh-huh. that's exactly why you need to publish this book. <laughs> you, people need to know who Father Oliva Orly- I got the same response, by the way, on my book that North Carolina did as well on Sal Castro. Who is Sal uh-huh. Castro? Why you need, that's why you need to publish it. You know, we have reached a point, especially demographically, but also culturally, ethnically, and so forth, where our understanding of American history has to significantly change and be revised and so forth. We need to bring in the Father Olivares, the Sal Castros, and so forth and so on, um, people I've written about in activists, uh, Rosalia Munoz, Raul Ruiz, Gloria Arianes, Uh These people need to be now integrated, understanding about civil rights history and uh, um, so forth and so on. And, uh, uh, and but I, so I throw it out, I'm basically throwing out that challenge. I mean, he, he's, he's very much, he is, this is American history. It needs to be integrated, but I also throw out the challenge In terms of California history, this is a California story as well. It's an L.A. story, but it's also a Catholic story. So I'm throwing out that challenge to uh, Catholic uh, studies historians. You you guys need to know this as well. You need to integrate it as well and so forth. So uh, the sanctuary movement in L.A., you know, just to focus on that again, was the most important sanctuary movement anywhere in the country. No one else throughout the United States was doing what Father Olivares was doing in L.A. in terms of the services and the protection and the speaking out that he did on the Central American refugees. Mm -hmm. Most of the other sanctuary movements were limited. Maybe they might help a couple of families and so forth. So a lot of the the other sanctuary movements were in many ways symbolic. La Placita, not only was it symbolic, it was real. It was happening. And so if one's going to write about or speak about the sanctuary movement in the 1980s, which was so important, you've got to begin and end with what, what Olivares was doing in La Placita. I mean, there's just no ifs and buts about it. And yet that hasn't been done. Uh-huh. Um, so maybe this book will help to revive that history, of the sanctuary movement as well. So in many ways, I'm throwing out in that intro a lot of challenges, as I mentioned earlier. A challenge to our own fellow Chicano and Chicana historians. I mean, uh, let's let let's expand our our interests and so forth, and let's uh, let's look at the role of faith politics in various communities and so forth, or how that's part of the kind of issues that we're studying and so forth. But in a way, I'm also throwing out the challenge that we, of course, as you know, I mean, I, I've done biographical work, life stories, testimonials, so, uh, and, and there's a heavy focus, obviously, on the role of leadership, but we need more biographies. I mean, there's so many uh, biographical studies that, as you know, that can be done. Where's that biography of Mario Compián, who you mentioned, right. uh, or Rosie Castro, who's going to do that fabulous story? of her and uh, how she spawns off those the, the two sons and so forth. I, I think that uh, we need to especially emphasize to our graduate students, I mean, this is a fertile ground biography, yeah. but it's not that we're studying uh, the great man approach to history, as you mentioned several times already, Olivares' story is not just a story of an individual. It's a story of a community. It's a story of a collective movement and struggles and so forth. Yes, of course, he's very important to that and the role of the individual as part of leadership. But no leader can do what Olivares did by himself. It was a a collective uh, out of his parish and other people uh, outside the parish who were in support of the refugees and the undocumented as well. So... I, I keep always thinking, who's going to do that big biography of Dolores Huerta? Who's going to step up to the plate and finally say, you know, besides always saying, you know, we need, we need to integrate Dolores. We need to, you know, every, everyone always talking about Caesar. Well, what about, okay, well, who's going to step up? Who's going to step up and do that big, big biography? Whoever does that big biography of Dolores Huerta, I tell my graduate students, it's going to literally leap in the historical field. Uh, your career will be set for life, and uh, but no one's t- taken it on. And uh, well, there's the and know, an edited volume, as you know, on Dolores Huerta. That's useful for college use. It's a big project, and I t- had too many other big projects, including the Father Olivares one. Right.
1: Well, I know that there are, and I think that's 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 a that's one thing I appreciate about the introduction. I think it's both a challenge to, uh, you know. Uh, I think it's a challenge to the broader public, you know, as well, number one, that there are all these figures that that are there, that there are books on, you know, there are works on, I mean, I'm thinking of Lorena Oropesa's, you know, recent, uh, you know, biography of Reyes Lopez Tijerina, so mm-hmm. even Chicano scholars are responding Um there are I know that there, there's some young scholars, you know, doing wonderful work on Alicia Escalante, you know, and and some mm-hmm. others. And so you know, like the stuff is coming. I think Gabriel Gonz- Gonzalez, her work on Emma Tanyuka, at least her, her chapter, you know, in Redeeming La Raza. So it's tricky, but I think there's there's several things, um, and I'm agreeing with you that that we need more biography, but I think to to scholars, you know, it's it's, uh, there's there's several institutional constraints, right, for both those on a, on a tenure track. Biography is usually not going to be the book that's going to get you tenure, right, uh, if you have a tenure track job at a place that's going to Right. Facilitate that. You also have, as you've experienced and expressed, there's, you know, that, that also that, that type of barrier to get over with with publishers, right? Uh, particularly to help them see the value and say, you know, yes, these, you know, Latinos and Chicanos that you know nothing about deserve, right? Significant treatment, Um but i and i think we're we're confident uh, i think what we as we look at to you know scholars that are coming up i think we're going to see that more and more we we are starting to see it and you're right it's a it's a trickle right now we'd rather see the flood of it um i think it's going to i think it is going to happen um like you know, it's kind of one of those things that that yes, as, as we read these and we know about these people. Even my students, as they took this trip to South Texas, all of them were asking these questions: Where is the book on Marta Coter?a Where is the book, you know, on Rossi Castro, etc.? Right. So, I think uh, through through some leadership, you know, not leadership, but you know, guidance as well as encouragement. You know, a lot of our students need encouragement to pursue these type of projects.
0: Um, Absolutely, see it, I, I agree with everything you just said, David. And um, I think also one can say, I mean, there is now a concerted movement of scholars, uh, young scholars, and others, who are moving in the direction of uh, uh, religious history, mm-hmm. uh, especially oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Chicano Latino Catholic history and yeah. literature.
1: There's some fr- beginning to mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. develop. Yeah yeah no definitely i th- i i agree with that well i know uh we i've i've held you a little over our time i wanna give you one moment I know you have a a very exciting conference coming up the biennial south Castro memorial conference did you wanna make a uh just announcement a plug for that um on our podcast for our listeners to be aware yeah, of'cause thank you I was, I
0: was gonna throw that in anyway david but thank there you, you for prompting <laughs> me on that yes or because a lot of been, this
1: a lot of what we're saying right a lot of what we're calling for right is a bunch of it is presented in early form yes. right at, at yes.
0: conferences like I mean uh, as you know I mean there has been a renewed interest in the history of the chicano movement over the last 10 15 years and as I began to realize that I began to organize these conferences every other year on those people who are working on different aspects of the chicano movement there's almost a kind of a renaissance in chicano movement, uh, historiography, and so uh, the fifth biannual, uh, now the conference is called, after the death of Sal Castro a few years ago, it's now called the uh, Sal Castro Memorial Conference on the Emerging Historiography of the Chicano Movement, and it will be held February 28th and 29th here at University of California, Santa Barbara, and if uh, people in other parts of um, the country, the state, and so forth, California, want to uh find out more they can contact me d- directly uh my email is garcia at garcia@history.ucsb.edu ucsb meaning university of california santa barbara they can contact me for more information it's free it's open to the public It'll be 2 days we'll have uh, approximately some 26 uh, uh historians but also um, some in the social sciences some in literature who will be uh Presenting their research and their papers on different aspects of the Chicano movement, it looks very exciting. And um, and if people you know want the program, I can send it to them uh, via email attachment. So uh, we're very excited about that. And this is done in part also to well not only to showcase the importance of of uh, this new, these new works coming out on the, on the Chicano movement, which is so central, of course. Is, I mean, so much of what has become as Latino political power, Chicano political power, is so much of it, it comes out of the Chicano movement. Uh, certainly, tremendous gains we've made in terms of educational attainment, especially in the uh, in the colleges and universities. Uh, we have so many more Chicano Latino students, and a lot of that is a result of the struggles of the movement, right. uh, the pressure on universities and so forth to open up to admit. Uh, minorities, such as Chicanos and Latinos. And of course, it's also, you know, to uh, pay homage uh, to a great American figure, uh, Sal Castro, and uh, his uh, many, many years of being a committed teacher, of course, best known as an inspiration for uh, for the students who walked out in the historic blowouts or walkouts in uh, March of 1968, that really called attention to uh, the movement beginning to develop in the urban areas, and that the schools would become an important battleground uh, for the for the Chicano movement to challenge a, a long, long history of segregation and inferior education uh, that affected uh, Mexican American uh, students over the course of the 20th century. Uh, David, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you again, and uh, I hope that uh, that uh, you know. Uh, Uh, We'll get a chance to get together. Uh, I invite you to come to the conference if you can. That would be great.
1: Oh, certainly. Yeah, I'll I'll be there. I, in fact, I'm thinking I was. I just looked glancing over my bookshelf. The last time I was there, which I think was not the last, the previous conference, but, but the one before that, Lori Flores uh, was you know presented on her book that had just come out, Grounds for Dreaming, and Max Crockmall was there and he presented a chapter from Blue Texas, which had not been released, but I think came out about a year after that. So uh, definitely, it's a it's a. Yes, and there'll be people as you know we
0: we. Uh... We have a special panel on recently published books on the Chicano movement, so we'll have, uh, I think, about six presentations. So uh, those are uh, people that, uh, you know, obviously you might be quite interested in interviewing. Well,
1: phenomenal. I look forward to being there and seeing you there and and hearing of all the great, wonderful scholarship that's coming forward. Mario, thank you again uh, for coming on to New Books in Latino Studies. Uh, Best of luck in in your future work and for a, a wonderful conference.
0: Thank you, David, and, uh, and, and good luck. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you so much.